the Lord Jesus. And what we do by practice is just to take one book of the Bible and work through it. So at the moment we're in this book of Romans. So if you turn to page 1134, you'll find Romans chapter 8. And you're coming in in the middle of the story, but hopefully you'll manage to pick up where we are. Romans 8, and we're going to read uh, through this tonight, verses 18 to 27. We'll read through it as we go. But verse 18 says this, I consider, this is the Apostle Paul writing, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now Craig, Vivian, Michael and Fiona, let me speak to you tonight. The Christian life, you will know, is not one where you are excluded from suffering in this life. In fact, in this verse and in verse 17, the one before it, Paul is really clear. Christians are not excluded from suffering, but should expect suffering. That was the pattern laid down by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was hated, and he said his followers will be hated. He suffered, and so his followers will suffer. Now, is then the Christian life worth it? Is it worth that cost? Why should you endure such suffering? I want to show you the answer tonight. Look down to verse 24. The first sentence in verse 24. For in this hope you were saved. Let's get the first slide up, Andrew. For in this hope you were saved. How on earth can Paul say that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us because of this hope? A Christian is someone who is constantly looking forward. Their eyes are on what is to come. And Paul says this hope, the glory that's ahead, is not worth comparing to the suffering that we have now. He says this hope is so heavy. That's the sense of what the word glory means. It's a heaviness, a weightiness. The hope is so heavy that it renders even the most intense suffering light in comparison. Some things in life are worth comparing. Some things aren't. So if I had a set of scales up here and I had an elephant and a butterfly... You would say, it's probably not worth comparing the weight of those two things. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, the hope that a Christian has for what is to come is elephant-like in its proportions. So that when you consider your present sufferings, they are butterfly-esque. Now that sentence sounds massively insensitive if it comes from the life and the lips of someone who's never suffered. But here the Apostle Paul speaks as one who has the scars of an earnest speaker. You can read in his second letter to the Corinthians some of the suffering that he endured. He can speak with authority on this subject. And so when he says they are not worth comparing, he's worth listening to. So what I want to show you for tonight especially is this hope in which you were saved. So that you guys would endure. That you would wait patiently for what is to come. Now before I get to you four, let me speak to 
Those of you who may be guests tonight, this is new for you and Christianity is certainly not you. How would you finish the sentence that starts, I would consider that my present suffering is... dot, dot, dot. I wonder how you'd finish that sentence. I consider that my present suffering is not very much. You may say, well, I'm not, I'm not suffering. Some of you, though, may say, well, I consider that my present suffering is just a massive inconvenience for my pursuit of happiness. Isn't it true that most of us are living our life pursuing kind of comfort and happiness and suffering just gets in the way? Cancer gets in the way of my happiness. Bereavement gets in the way of my happiness. Unemployment gets in the way of my happiness. Suffering is just a, a hindrance. Some of us, though, may say, I consider that my present suffering is too much. I just cannot bear the present suffering. It's probably true. That is one of the thoughts foremost in the mind of the person who commits suicide, isn't it? It's too much. And so death is far better than anything that life has to offer me. It's probably the thought that pushes someone to contemplate and want euthanasia. Our present sufferings are just too much. Well, tonight as we speak and we read in God's word about the hope that a Christian has, I want you to to do two things. First, listen. Consider this Christian hope. And I I think you'll be surprised at the scope of it. But secondly, to actively investigate this Christian hope. Does it have any foundation? Or is it just niceties that make us feel better? In Edinburgh, we've had this tragic um, event at Liberton High School with this little girl, Keen, dying. Now, on our Facebook page that day, you had all these people making, um, you know, very honest and loving things like there's another star in the sky tonight Um, there's another angel in heaven now they're fine but they actually cannot bear much weight they're nice but actually there's not a lot to them now does the Christian hope fall into that category or can it bear a little bit more weight Is it just happy thoughts, or is it real hope? That's what I want us to come and consider at the end tonight. Because what we see is Christian hope is not the hope that kind of says, I hope Tesco's has calippos. It's not that kind of, I really hope this might happen. But it's the firm confidence based on what God has done and what he has promised. And actually for a Christian, hope is a completely new mode of thinking where new things are possible and possibilities are not shut down. It's a new worldview. So we'll come back to that. But let me speak again back to you four. What is this hope in which you have been saved? Well, let me outline it from Romans chapter 8. Paul lets you listen in on some groaning. And through this groaning, he wants to show you this hope. So here's the first thing. Creation groaning for glory, waiting for the new birth. Let's read verses 19 to 22. The creation, Paul writes, 
waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now we all know what a groan is. You become more aware of what a groan is as you get older. It's kind of that noise you make when you're trying to get out of a beanbag. But um, groaning can be for lots of different reasons. Here, why is creation groaning? It is groaning in frustration. That is out of a a sense that it is not achieving the purpose for which it was created. See, in this Christian worldview, creation was meant to be the theater of God's glory that was ruled by man and woman made in God's image. But as the story goes, when Adam and Eve weren't content to be just in God's image but wanted to be God, in trying to ascend, they actually fell. And as they fell, they were under the righteous judgment of God. And as Adam and Eve come under condemnation, the creation comes under frustration. So that creation suffers because of Adam and Eve's fall. God subjected it to frustration. The the feeling for creation is a little bit like the feeling an orchestra would have if its conductor was off its head. Or the frustration a play would have if its leading actors were drunk. Just It is frustrated because the main characters are completely off their heads. And so creation subjected to frustration by God. And so we know, don't we? I, I don't have to prove this to you. Creation groans. It groans because we're stuck in this endless cycle where conception, birth, and growth are always followed by decline, death, and decomposition. We cannot escape this cycle. One follows the other constantly. And yet, for the creation was subjected to frustration, verse 20, in hope. The creation knows that there's something better to come. That God has promised something better. If you look at verse 22, the image that's used is, we know that creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. I've never given birth. I've heard it's painful. But the pain of childbirth is always a pain that is in hope. It is agony. And my guess is if you asked any woman in labor giving birth to her first child, she would probably say to you, or probably not say, she would give you a look that said, one's enough. (laughs) But actually, once she's given birth, the love, the joy, the life, means that the pain is not just secondary, but forgotten. Is that true, mothers? There is hope in the labor pains of pregnancy. And Paul says, when it comes to the groans of creation, they are not the death throes of a dying man, but the birth pains of a woman in labor. What is coming? 
Creation will share in the liberation and the glorious freedom of the children of God. Creation is going to experience a new birth. What is the hope of a Christian? Most of you have asked, would probably say, it's a hope for heaven. You've been shortchanged if you're a Christian and you believe that. It's heavier than that. It's more elephant-like than that. The hope for a Christian is that this entire creation is going to go through new birth and new life. That all the effects of Adam and Eve's sin are going to be wiped away. A new creation. The glorious freedom of God's children. The hope for a Christian is not just heaven, new creation. But there's a second groaning in this passage which flows on because we're told creation is waiting for Christians. So here's the second groaning in the passage. Christians groaning for glory, waiting for new bodies. Let's read verses 23 to 25. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Christians groan. And why do they groan? Here it's not out of frustration, but it's first fruits. If you're here this morning, you know what that means. But basically, first fruits just means that there are going to be more fruits. First fruits is the promise of more fruits. As a Christian, you're grown. But you groan with the first fruit. There is more to come. It is true of a Christian, they can say three things. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. Again, there's that forward look. There is something still to come. Again, this week, the tragic story of this uh, ferry that um, uh, went under. Now, when someone has been taken off that ferry and is on a lifeboat, what can that person say? They can say, I have been saved. I've been taken off a sinking ship. They can say, I am being saved. I'm on a lifeboat. But they can also say, I will be saved. I'll get my feet plonked on dry ground. The same is true for a Christian. They have been saved. God has rescued them by his, the cross of his son from the consequences of their sin. He can say, I am being saved. God is rescuing me continually. But they can also say, I will be saved. On the day of his judgment, I will be safe in Christ rather than punished for my sin. Now that is what the sense is in verse uh, 20. Three, we eagerly await for our adoption as sons. Now, if you were here last week, you're saying, hang on. You told us that we were adopted already. We can cry, Abba, Father. Now he's saying, we await our adoption. Well, you have been adopted. You will be adopted. There will be this glorious moment where we will be with our Heavenly Father. Where you will be perfectly like your big brother, Jesus. Enjoying time in his family. That's still to come. It's a heavy hope. But also, we await the redemption of our bodies. Now again, you four can say, we have been redeemed. We've been released from the penalty and the power of our sins in the cross of Christ. But it's heavier than that. 
The elephant is fatter than that. Because it's a redemption not only from sin, but of our bodies. What is going to happen to Christians? The exact same thing that happened to Jesus. He died physically. He was raised physically. You four, unless Jesus comes before you die, will die physically. But here is your heavy hope. That your bodies will be redeemed. You will be made new. Again, don't believe the lie that a Christian's heaven is this hope of heaven in disembodied spirits floating on clouds eating Philadelphia cheese. That is not the Christian hope. It is better than that. It is new bodies for the new creation. It is resurrection physical bodies like the resurrection physical body of Jesus. When what happened to Jesus at Easter happens to every Christian believer. That is your heavy hope. And that is why creation is waiting for you. Because it's waiting not for the drunk conductor or the office head actors, but someone who's being redeemed in body and soul to live and to serve in God's new creation. That is an amazing hope. Look back to verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's a glory, not just something you will see, but something you will be. Last week we thought of what it meant to be an heir of God. But the hope is more than that. It is something that you will become. You will be glorious. There's a great sermon preached on this text by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. And in that he says, if we were to see you as you will be then, we would fall down and worship you. Now, we're not going to do that tonight because to look at, you're not all that much. None of us are. But then, in resurrected bodies, we will share in the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. That is the heaviness of your hope. Not only a new creation, but new bodies. But there's a third groaning in this passage. So far, we've seen a future hope that will help us in present sufferings. But it's interesting, in the final verses, verses 26 and 27, who groans? In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Christians have a hope for the future that helps us in wait in the present, but we also have help in the present as we wait for the future. The Spirit groaning to God, helping our weakness. Not only a hope for the future, but help in the present. It is a distinctive of Christianity that God Himself would enter into the groaning creation. That in the person of his son, Jesus, he would take on flesh, become a bloke, a human being just like you and me, and he would groan. God groans. He groans in hunger. He groans in thirst. He groans in isolation. He groans in pain. He groans in the agony of a cross, even unto death. And why does he do it? The Christian can say, for us. He died for us instead of us. 
But again, the help that a Christian has is not just in God the Son coming and sharing in our groaning, but in God the Holy Spirit. Not coming into a body, but coming into your life and groaning for you to God. Again, it's an interesting way that we're told we are very, very weak. So weak that we, we don't even know what we should pray for. And yet what does God do? He gives us his spirit to intercede, to groan for us with words, and with groans that words could not express. True prayer is always Trinitarian prayer. That is, it is always to God the Father, through God the Son, and by God the Spirit. That is the Christian praise to the Rabbi Father. They can only do so through the adoption that happens with Jesus, and only by the power of his Spirit, working, speaking on our behalf. Amazing thing is that we can share in the intimate life of God the Trinity, even in our muddled praying. Not only a hope for the future, but help in the present. And so what is Paul's application to you for tonight? Well, he says, wait. In verse 23, he says, uh, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. And then in verse 25, uh, we hope for what we do not have. We wait for it patiently. We're told to be eager in our patience and patient in our eagerness. How can you keep going? How can you endure the present suffering? Well, you wait patiently and eagerly, remembering the heaviness of the hope that is definitely ahead for you. If I were to say, I I can't do this, but if I was to say, I'll give you one billion pounds if you endure just one second of pain. And I mean the most intense pain. Would you take it? I think most of us would say for one second, it's pretty brief. I'd take a billion. The attitude of the Christian is remembering that the time we spend in this life is relatively short compared to the length of eternity. And I can endure the pain now because of the heaviness of the hope that is to come. God is my father and so I'm his heir. Uh, The new creation is going to be the place where I'll dwell for eternity in a resurrection body like the resurrection body of Christ. Craig, Vivian, Michael and Fiona, be eager and be patient as you wait for that day. It's coming. John Stott, an old guy who is very, very wise, wrote this. I'd love to write a sentence as good as this. We are neither to wait so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently patiently that we lose our expectation, but eagerly and patiently together. In this hope you were saved. It was a hope heavy enough to help Jesus through the agony of the cross. I hope heavy enough to help Paul endure his persecution and martyrdom. And so I hope heavy enough to keep you guys going. Now let me come back to you if Christianity is new and it's certainly not you. My guess is this is probably the thought process going on in your mind. It's probably something like, aye, very good. (laughs) Uh, You're probably saying it's not a heavy hope, it's more of a kind of heavy hallucination. 
this idea of cosmic renewal and resurrection bodies. But can I just ask you two things? First of all, to engage with the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' miracles. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are not proposing to be myths that they've concocted, but actually eyewitness testimonies of what people actually saw. And what they saw was Jesus combating the decay and the frustration that we all face in this creation. And what Jesus was doing in his miracles when he calmed storms and when he healed the paralytic and when he cured the leper and when he raised the dead and when he released the demon-possessed, the whole point of those miracles, what Jesus was doing up close and in the present, was to show what he was going to do in universal scope in the future. That is that he's not just saving souls for a disembodied eternity, but he's rescuing people from the corruption and decay of this creation and for the renewal of new creation. Now, if you can disprove the eyewitness accounts of the miracles, then you can say, oh, this hope is just hallucination. But actually, if you read the eyewitness accounts and you say, do you know what, this this is real, then actually this hope is real. What Jesus did in his miracles is just a foretaste of what he's going to do in the new creation. Disprove them, you've disproved Christianity. But if they're real, then it opens up this new worldview of hope where new things are possible. Secondly, engage with the eyewitness testimonies, especially about the miracle of miracles, the resurrection of Jesus. If he died, and nothing else happened. He's just a bloke like you and me. We need not sing songs about him. We need not read about him. He's like any one of us. But if he rose, changes everything. Again, it opens up this new worldview where actually new things are possible. There maybe is hope for life beyond death. And actually what Jesus is doing in his resurrection is not just demonstrating his own power, but he's setting a pattern. And just as he died and rose, so too you will die and rise, either to this new creation or to eternal hell. I guess my question for you tonight would be, in your own groans, in your own present suffering, how do you cope? Where do you look to for hope? Are you going to kind of bury your head in the sand, hopefully endure the suffering and then get back to your happy life? Or are you going to allow the groans of this life to be God's megaphone of communicating to you, actually, do you know what? There is a hope because of Jesus. He died, but he rose. Now let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word, the Bible. Thank you that it is uh, your words to us. Thank you that it tells us of your son, Jesus, and for the hope that is to come. And I pray for uh, these four brothers and sisters, uh, that they would have such a heavy hope for what is to come because of Christ, that it would help them wait with patient eagerness 
in the present sufferings that they will have. And Father, I pray that even as they are baptized now, that as we thought of last week, your spirit would testify to them, encourage their hearts that they are your sons and your daughters. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.